Section 26. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Electricity, Chapter 8. The Telephone, Part 1. In 1854, a Frenchman, Charles Bersoul, predicted the transmission of speech and outlined a method, correct save in one particular, but for which error one following his directions could have produced a speaking telephone. His words at this date seem almost prophetic. I have asked myself, for example, if the spoken word itself could not be transmitted by electricity. In a word, if what was spoken in Vienna may not be heard in Paris, the thing is practicable in this way. Suppose that a man speaks near a movable disc, sufficiently flexible to lose none of the vibrations of the voice, that this disc alternately makes and breaks the connection from a battery. You may have at a distance another disc, which will simultaneously execute the same vibrations. The words makes and breaks in Boursoul's quotation have been italicized by the present writer. They form the keynote of the failures of those who subsequently followed Boursoul's directions literally. Philip Rees, a German inventor, constructed what he called a telephone in 1861 following implicitly the path outlined by Boursoul. He mounted a flexible diaphragm over an opening in a wooden box and on the center of the diaphragm fastened a small piece of platinum. Near this he mounted a heavy brass spring with which the platinum alternately made and broke contact when the diaphragm was caused to vibrate. These contact points form the terminals of a circuit containing a battery and the receiving instrument. His receiver assumed various forms, prominent among which was a knitting needle wrapped with silk-insulated copper wire and mounted on a cigar box for a sounding board. Its operation was as follows. The sound wave set up in the air struck against the diaphragm of the transmitter, causing it to vibrate in unison with them. This caused the alternate making and breaking of the circuit at the point of contact between the platinum and the spring, and allowed intermittent currents to flow through the receiver. These caused a series of sounds in the kneading needle by virtue of Page's effect. The sounding board vibrated in unison with the molecular vibrations of the needle, and the sound was thus greatly amplified. Reese's telephone could be depended upon to transmit only musical sounds. The question as to whether it actually did transmit speech has been the subject of much discussion. But if it did this at all, it was very imperfectly. The cause of its failure, says K.B. Miller in his American Telephone Practice, to successfully transmit speech will be understood from the following facts. A simple musical tone is caused by vibrations of very simple forms, while sound waves produced by the voice in speaking are very complex in their nature. Sound possesses three qualities. Pitch, depending entirely on the frequency of the vibrations. Loudness, depending on the amplitude of the vibrations. And timbre, or quality, depending on the form of the vibration. The tones of a flute and a violin may be the same as to pitch and loudness, yet be radically different. This difference is in timbre, or quality. 
Reese's transmitter, as he adjusted it, was able only to make and break the circuit, and a movement of the diaphragm barely sufficient to break the circuit produced the same effect as a much greater movement. The current therefore flowed with full strength until the circuit was broken, when it stopped entirely. The intermediate strengths needed for reproducing the delicate modulations of the voice were entirely lacking. This apparatus could therefore exactly reproduce the pitch of a sound, but not its timbre and relative loudness. For the next fifteen years, no apparent advance was made in the art of telephony, although several inventors gave it their attention. In 1876, Professor Alexander Graham Bell and Professor Elisha Gray almost simultaneously invented successful speaking telephones. Gray has been one of the principal claimants for the honor of being the first inventor of the telephone, but Bell has apparently established his right to it and has also reaped the profit, for, after long litigation, the United States Patent Office and the courts have awarded the priority to him as against Gray and many others. Bell possessed a greater knowledge of acoustics than of electrical science, and it was probably this that led him to appreciate wherein others had failed. His instrument consisted of a permanent bar magnet, having on one end a coil of fine wire. In front of the pole carrying the coil, a thin diaphragm of soft iron was so mounted as to allow its free vibration close to the pole. Two points will be noticed, says Miller, in the work before cited, which have heretofore been absent, that no battery is used in the circuit, and that the transmitting and receiving instruments are exactly alike. When the soft iron diaphragm of the transmitting instrument is spoken to, it vibrates in exact accordance with the sound waves striking against it. The movement of the diaphragm causes changes in the magnetic field in which lies the coil, which changes, as already pointed out, cause currents to flow in the circuit. These currents flow first in one direction and then in the other, varying in unison with movements of the diaphragm, the waves being very complex as represented graphically. Passing along the line wire, these electrical impulses, so feeble that only the most delicate instruments can detect them, alternately increase and decrease the strength of the permanent magnet of the receiving instrument, and thereby cause it to exert a varying pull on its soft iron diaphragm, which as a result takes up the vibrations and reproduces the sound faithfully. Bell's earlier instruments were exhibited in 1876 at the Centennial in Philadelphia. The receiver consisted of a tubular magnet composed of a coil of wire surrounding a core and enclosed in an iron tube which was about quarter inches in diameter and three inches long. This tube was closed by a thin iron armature or diaphragm which rested loosely on the upper face of the iron tube, the length of the core being such as not quite to touch the diaphragm when in this position. The whole of it was mounted on a base, arrangements being made to adjust the air gap between the pole of the core and the diaphragm by means of a thumbscrew. The transmitter consisted of an electromagnet in front of the core, on which was adjustably mounted a diaphragm of gold-beater's skin carrying a small iron armature at its center. A long mouthpiece, into which the sounds to be transmitted were spoken, served to convey the sound waves more directly to the diaphragm. Nearly all books and articles on telephones, says Miller, 
that treat of Bell's earlier receiver at all show and describe it as having the diaphragm fastened at one edge by a single small screw to the upper face of the iron tube, and sprung away from the tube at its opposite side. This mistake occurred in the first two editions of this work, and would have been in this one, but for Thomas D. Lockwood, who was kind enough to call attention to it. The origin of the error is explained in the following interesting extract from a letter written by Mr. Lockwood to the writer of this book. This mistake first appeared in the account given by engineering of Sir William Thompson's address to the British Association in September 1876, and has been universally copied. The origin of the mistake is very odd. The screw of the instrument given to Sir William Thompson, and which he exhibited in England on his return, was put through a hole in the edge of the diaphragm and engaged with the threaded hole of the tube, for the purpose of attaching the diaphragm while in transit, to prevent it from getting lost. No one, however, notified Sir William of this, it probably having been forgotten. And Sir William seems to have forgotten what the instrument as he saw it in Philadelphia looked like. Finally, in knocking about among Sir William's luggage, the free end of the diaphragm was apparently, and without doubt unintentionally, bent upward, as the picture shows. But when so bent, being at the same time rigidly fastened at the opposite edge, it would not and could not work, and when Sir William showed it in England, he couldn't make it work. Bell's instrument in a modified form is the standard of today. It is now used as a receiver only, a more efficient transmitter depending upon entirely different principles having been invented. In speaking of Bell's invention, Sir William Thompson, Lord Kelvin, said, Who can but admire the hardihood of invention which devised such very slight means to realize the mathematical conception that if electricity is to convey all the delicacies of quality which distinguish articulate speech, the strength of its current must vary continuously as nearly as may be in simple proportion to the velocity of a particle of air engaged in constituting the sound. Much has been said, and books have been written on the rights of Rees as the inventor of the speaking telephone. The validity of Bell's controlling patent was the subject of many attacks, the litigation finally reaching the Supreme Court of the United States. In the opinion of this court, October term 1887, the following brief but comprehensive statement is found. We have not had our attention called to a single item of evidence which tends in any way to show that Reese or any one who wrote about him, had in his mind that anything else than the intermittent current caused by the opening and closing of the circuit could be used to do what was wanted. No one seems to have thought that there could be another way. All recognized the fact that the minor differences in the original vibrations had not been satisfactorily reproduced, but they attributed it to the imperfect mechanism of the apparatus used, rather than to any fault in the principle on which the operation was to depend. It was left for Bell to discover that the failure was due not to workmanship, but to the principle which was adopted as the basis of what had to be done. He found 
that what he called the intermittent current, one caused by alternately opening and closing the circuit, could not be made under any circumstances to reproduce the delicate forms of the air vibrations caused by the human voice in articulate speech, but that the true way was to operate on an unbroken current by increasing and diminishing its intensity. Such was his discovery, and it was new. Reese never thought of it, and he failed to transmit speech telegraphically. Bell did, and he succeeded. Under such circumstances, it is impossible to hold that what Reese did was an anticipation of the discovery of Bell. To follow Reese is to fail, but to follow Bell is to succeed. The difference between the two is just the difference between failure and success. A very interesting fact, and one which might have changed the entire commercial status of the telephone industry, is that in 1868, Royal E. House of Binghamton, New York, invented and patented an electrophonetic telegraph, which was capable of operating as a magnetotelephone in the same manner as the instruments subsequently devised by Bell. House knew nothing of its capabilities, however, unfortunately for him. The instrument is provided with a sounding diaphragm of pine wood stiffened with varnish, mounted in one end of a large sound amplifying chamber, so formed as to focus sound waves at a point near its mouth where the ear was to be placed to receive them. The electromagnet adapted to be connected in the line circuit had its armature connected by a rod with the center of the wooden diaphragm. By this means, any movements imparted to the armature by fluctuating currents in the line were transmitted to the diaphragm, causing it to give out corresponding sounds. And any movements imparted to the diaphragm by sound waves were transmitted to the armature, causing its movements to induce corresponding currents in the line. Two of these instruments connected in a circuit would act alternately as transmitters and receivers in the same manner as Bell's instruments. It has been shown that in order to transmit speech by electricity, it is necessary to cause an undulatory or alternating current to flow in the circuit over which the transmission is to be effected, and that the strength of this current at all times be in exact accordance with the vibratory movements of the body producing the sound. Bell's magnetic transmitter was used as the generator of this current, as a dynamo, in fact, the energy for driving which was derived from the sound waves set up by the voice. The amount of energy so derived was, however, necessarily very small, and the current correspondingly weak, and for this reason was not a practical form of transmitter, except for comparatively short lines. Elisha Gray devised a transmitter which, instead of generating the undulatory current itself, depended for its action on causing variation in the strength of a current generated by some separate source. This variation in current strength always being in accordance with the movements of the diaphragm. He mounted on his horizontal vibrating diaphragm a metal needle extending into a fluid of low conductivity, such as water. The needle formed one terminal of the circuit the other terminal being a metal pin extending up through the bottom of the containing vessel. The vibrations of the diaphragm was supposed to cause changes in the resistance of the path through the fluid, on account of the varying distance between the points of the electrodes and therefore corresponding changes in the strength of the current. 
Bell also used a liquid transmitter in which a conducting liquid was held in a conducting vessel, forming one terminal of the circuit. The other terminal was a short metallic needle carried on the diaphragm and projecting slightly into the liquid, so that the area of contact between the liquid and the needle would be varied, to better advantage by the vibration of the diaphragm than if the needle were immersed a greater distance into the fluid. Bell's liquid transmitter depended on variation in the extent of immersion of the electrode, while Gray's instrument, owing to the great extent to which the pin was immersed, depended rather on the variation and the length of the conducting path through the liquid itself, a faulty principle for this purpose. Bell's liquid transmitter was also exhibited at the Philadelphia Centennial in 1876, and unlike that of Reese, simply caused variations in the resistance of the circuit and thereby allowed a continuous but undulatory current to pass over the line, the variations in which were able to reproduce all the delicate shades of timbre, loudness, and pitch necessary in articulate speech. Gray and Bell embodied or attempted to embody in these instruments the main principle upon which all successful battery transmitters are based. A battery furnished the current, and the transmitter, actuated by the voice, served to modulate it. It was not long, however, before a much better means was devised for putting this principle into practice. End of section 26